What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it going. I'm Chase Winninger, host of the podcast, Lee McClellan, co-host. Hope everyone's doing well. And today's guest, Zach Danks, and you are the turkey program coordinator. That's right. And you also handle grouse. I do. Just those two species, right? Yep, much as possible, just those two. But you have a lot to do with quail and other... Oh yeah, it's birds. a lot of overlap and collaboration. Yeah, but mainly the overlap comes from habitat, I'm yep. assuming. Yep, habitat and just... You know, overlapping management, turkey, concerns and turkey, turkey, quail, and grouse, and I'm assuming pheasants, although they aren't native, probably all need about the same type of habitat to, to really do well, right? Those ground nesting birds, it seems like they'd all benefit from the same thing. Similar stuff, yeah. It's it's same in a different way, if that makes any sense. You There's might. different flavors on maybe the same theme, but yeah, each one has kind of its own. Well, we might, we might have to get more into that. I'm guessing the different flavors are the type of ground vegetation that benefit each animal. Sure. Because, yeah. I mean, a turkey nest is a heck of a lot bigger and the eggs are a lot bigger than a quail nest. So they mm -hmm. quail probably need something finer to help hide them or keep them safe or something like, something along that. That's right. That's good thinking. And so I'll just say temper that from in, in a nutshell. It's, yes, right there at the, at the individual bird or nest or farm scale. Mm -hmm. And think bigger. Think the landscape. Okay. okay, that's where things may differ. That's where you got to think back when we had quail, mm -hmm. what did Kentucky look like? Mm -hmm. Versus today, when we got a lot of tur relatively more turkeys, fewer quail, Kentucky has changed to a certain degree. You so know, I can talk more, ad nauseum about that stuff, but what? in other words, that's all to say, think beyond where you stand, what you see, the farm you're hunting. Well, that makes sense because as I drive down the road and I see turkeys, you know, the land looks a certain way. And then when I am let's say rabbit hunting and I get into a bunch of quail, the land looks much different where those quail are than where I happen to see the flock of 50 turkeys driving right. down 64. So that makes sense, but mm -hmm. same idea, different flavors. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Well, right now we're sitting, what is it, three days out from turkey season? I never know how to judge it because if you look at the calendar, is it three days or is it four days? Four, yeah. yeah. We're kind of getting toward the... Yeah. You know. Three days from now, this oh, exact midpoint of two days, so yep. 3.5. That's yeah. right. So in, in just a, a few or maybe more than a few days, it'll be time for turkey season, right? That's right. And I honestly don't think I've ever been as excited for turkey season as I am now. And I think the reason for that was because I went on a youth turkey hunt this year. So I got to get out there, you know, with a, a kid and his dad, and uh, I was filming for the TV show for Kentucky Field. And I got to see the birds pitch down, or I got to hear them gobble and see them, you know, courting the hens and watch all the action. And it just got me so amped up to get out there and do it again. You know, it was fun just hanging out with somebody while they were turkey hunting. But getting out there with a the shotgun in my hand, I'm really looking forward to it this year. Yeah, it's great. And um, aside from that, Kristen's going with me on Saturday. And she, she went deer hunting with me one time, but that's a little bit different. And my whole, the thing I love about turkey season is I know you've heard this, but it's like when the world's coming alive, right? It's mm -hmm. spring. You got the the you know spring wildflowers shooting up. You got maybe lucky and find some morels, the red buds and dogwoods are blooming. Like it's just beautiful outside. Yeah. And all these other animals are, you know, either just giving birth or getting ready to give birth. I feel like the deer are active this time of year. I see coyotes all the time this time of year. You know, and I've been hearing owls just on their own. You know, out in the daytime. I don't know if it's maybe their breeding season. But I'm excited for Kristen to go turkey hunting with me, more so than I was deer hunting, because she's a wildlife lover. Mm -hmm. So she can go out there, and even if we don't see a single turkey, she's going to enjoy the day. 
you know, watching the sun come up and seeing all the wildlife that we will see. Absolutely. Yep. So my game plan for Saturday is not to do it like I normally do it. Because typically I would get out there to the farm, I'd slam the truck door real loud or, or honk the horn because I don't have an owl call or a crow call, and I'd see if I could find that gobble. And then I would think about how I could, you know, strategically, without bumping the birds, how can I use the land and the trees to my advantage? How can I get close to that bird on the roost, you know? I had to go about it that way. And then I maybe give him a couple of soft yelps while he's on the roost, and when he pitched down, maybe let him know where I was, and then I'd just try to shut up most of the time. Mm -hmm. That's how I normally do it. But this time, I already know exactly where I want to sit. And I want to sit in a spot where we can, we're going to sit on a creek crossing with a field across the creek and a big field on our side of the creek with woods lining the creek. And I want to sit there because there is no way we sit on that creek crossing without seeing some kind of wildlife. Mm -hmm. You know, it's basically I'm setting up this time for a vantage point and for wildlife watching. And the turkey hunting is going to be my secondary. But I'm still in a good spot for turkeys. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I'm still in a spot where I could easily kill a turkey. So I'm going about it different on opening day, but I'm looking forward to it like you wouldn't believe. That's cool, man. That's really neat to, neat approach. I mean, well, I mean, the first part is how, you know, I would typically turkey hunt. And that's probably how most people do it, unless they got a ground blind set up somewhere. They know where they're going to be. But mm -hmm. I really like, I like running gun turkey hunting. I like chasing the gobbles, getting in close, you know, and stuff like that. But this Saturday, I'm just going to be wildlife watching and really hoping that a turkey decides to wander my way. Right. Because I don't think I can make a move with her. She's not very sneaky. <clears throat> Are you going to be out there this weekend? I am. Yep. Yep. Uh, Sunday, Sunday. Or Saturday. I can't go Saturday morning. Oh. Prior commitments. But uh, Saturday afternoon, I'm going to be out there either sitting for a while or else kind of uh, sort of uh, scout as you go, maybe find some to roost if I'm lucky, yeah. but Put a I know where I'm going. Yeah. And unless Saturday afternoon changes my plans, I know where I'm going Sunday, uh, blind set up with a bow. So, Oh, we'll with see. a bow. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's probably masochistic. <laughs> have you ever way. taken a bird with a bow? <laughs> you ever taken a turkey I with have, a bow? Yeah. Only hen. I've unfortunately, and it was years ago, but, uh, in the fall season, bird fever what? got me, but uh, gobbler fever got me and I missed gobblers. But yeah, in the fall season I got hen and, and uh, yeah, you know, eight, nine pound hen or something. So pretty much anchored her to the ground. But it's big gobblers are a big challenge. So that's what I that's what I was getting yeah. at. I've shot a few turkeys with a bow, you know, and you know I feel bad saying it, but recovery has been an issue for me. Yep. Because they don't blood trail. Okay, it's not like you can blood trail a turkey like you can a deer. I mean, right. I've had them. I've thought I've smoked a turkey before, and he has taken taken off flying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I've done that one. And how am I going to find this bird now? Yeah, and yeah, and I've been talking to. Yeah, I feel bad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been thinking about this more because I've had an interest in going with the bow more often. You know, Joe Lacefield, of yeah. course, big time. You know, he's a traditional archer, but you know, he is adamant that uh, really best shot is a headshot. Yeah, I believe that. Mm. And I think Whew. thinking about it from a a sporting <laughs> it's perspective, like trying to shoot the inside well, of a walnut. Yeah, it's hard. Can but, you do it with a longbow? Like, like, but think about it now. The vitals on a turkey are not. I mean, you say a softball, but that's a hard softball to hit potentially, well, they, especially they, if they, that bird's strutting. That's what I was gonna say. They move depending yeah. on where you need to aim. If the bird's at half strut, full strut, if he's relaxed, or exactly, they're all over the place. So it's not. It's not even. It's not that much bigger, and you know, with uh, with the gobbler specific broadheads that are out there now, mm -hmm. um, then you've got a little more margin for error. And slice and dice and power, but 
thing about it, it's a clean, probably a cleaner miss. Yeah. I mean, when you when you miss quote unquote a bird with shotgun, you're not missing it. You know, yeah. that bird's that bird's hurting. Mm -hmm. It's like you when know, you puff so. the tail feathers of a dove. You know. This, yeah. This, yeah. Well, that makes sense. So you're saying that you think it's actually a cleaner than uh, than using a shotgun because um, it, it's it's a it's pretty much a 100 percent or zero percent. Yeah. yeah certainly in the realm of possibility, there's some chance you could barely nick the you know, nick a vein and it bleeds slowly, but chances are it's yeah. all or nothing. Yeah. Which, you know, that's the ideal, right? We all want to make a nice killing shot on a deer or deer hunting. Mm -hmm. We want to stone cold that, you know, bird yeah, that we're, we're hunting. If yeah, we're bird hunting or duck hunting, if we want to fold it. You know, nobody likes a, a wing shot, to, no. uh, you know, drop a leg or something. We don't mm -hmm. like that. So anytime we can be, uh, we can be more, boom, clean cut, ethical, I think we should try for it. And archers already have a high standard, so maybe I'm asking even more of them. I don't think so. I think guys, if they take archery seriously, they, they probably are starting to think about this because they probably lost a bird or two. Oh, you stuck bird. I haven't shot a turkey in quite a while with a bow for that very reason, but it's because I was taking body shots. I think a reason that a lot of archers might not get into that today is because a lot of archers shoot mechanical. And to go back to a flix, fixed blade from a mechanical, like you feel some uncertainty there. Is it gonna shoot straight? Is it gonna, you know, it takes a little more work to get a fixed blade to to comfortably shoot mm -hmm. like a field point or to dial your bow in for a fixed blade or something like that. Right. And you obviously don't wanna use mechanicals if you're going for the headshot. So getting uh, people to switch back to a fixed blade would be, but you know, a lot of archers that I know that I respect who are good archery hunters, went to a mechanical for a while, like when they first came out and they were kind of the cool thing, but they're kind of transitioning back to the fixed blades. Because over five years of hunting or 10 years of hunting, eventually you're gonna shoot a deer and your the recovery isn't gonna be what you thought it would be based on your shot, you know? And with a mechanical, you always have that little bit of doubt in your mind was, did the, did the broadhead fail? Did mm -hmm. one of the hinges, you know? Not work, yeah. I pull out busted mechanical broadheads out of deer all the time. So, I mean, there's a chance you could be losing something there. So I think a lot of archers will start going back to a fixed blade in the future. Do you have to anticipate if you're trying to headshot? Will you have to, like, lead the bird or just, just pray it stays still yeah, for the always time good. it releases from the bow to... Right. I'd say you're setting yourself up. If you're in a ground blind, you're in a pretty good spot. You'll probably put your decoys out there at 15 yards and, and you'll know where your 20 is. Yeah. And you're probably shooting for about that range, if I had to guess, 25 yards. I think so, yeah, particularly if you're shooting a bigger fixed plate broadhead, you know, yeah. where it's, it's, it is harder to tune, Yeah, you know, so you're going to have to be comfortable with that shot, but yeah, it's a little more of an anticipation, but hopefully if you're in a blind, you do have that going for you. That'd be cool. I'll be looking but, forward uh, to hearing if you have uh, some success. On oh, that. I don't know. It's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for you, Zach, I'm a, now. I'm a conservationist. That's what I like to say. <laughs> uh, so, I'm a conservationist. <laughs> this is actually the first opening weekend in a long time that I, I will be hunting by myself opening weekend. Oh yeah. Or in this case, it's not by design. I was hoping to hunt with the landowner, good friend of mine, but he's got some stuff to attend to, so hopefully I can hunt with him later in the season. But yeah. So I did. You know, I, I'm not sure if this is a good question or not, Zach. But you have a prior commitment on opening morning, and you're the state's turkey program coordinator. That better not be a friend's wedding or something like that. No, no. <laughs> I was I'm, gonna uh, say. My other species is grouse, and uh, you know for. Turkey guys, I guess, that's that seems crazy, but rough grouse are an important species and they're hurting. 
And so this actually is a, it's a drumming survey. So mm -hmm. we do drumming surveys first couple weeks of April. And we always stop the Friday before turkey season mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. We don't want to you know, risk potential conflicts. But where we're doing this survey, it's, it's on a landowner who doesn't permit hunting on the property. Wow. It's not compatible with her goals. And this, this is a sort of like a, uh, it's a training session for some, some college students, UK. Yeah. And it, it's not yeah. not preferable, you know. But again, it's sort of a higher it higher calling situation yeah, in a way. So, got to well, do what you got to do. Plus, I don't mind hunting later in the season myself. Yeah. Um, so, I, the twenty I got twenty two other days to to have a shot at a turkey. Oh, there you go. Twenty two and a half if you go that afternoon. It's true. It's true. <clears throat> so the weather this weekend um, a little bit cooler. I'm going to pull it up real quick. Do you think the cold colder weather has an effect on the birds during mating season? Maybe less. I mean, the I way think, not not unless it's drastic. I mean, if it's drastic, the lows are like going to be had, in the forties. The highs are going to be in the sixties. It looks like yeah, that's, that's pretty day. typical, man. I don't think that's going to. I mean, we're we should be around peak of hormone rush with gobblers. Well, I, I mean, kind of believe. Just judging by what I hear, they're yeah. One of the guys are. I got that question. I'm gobbling from, like crazy right now. I got, people are going to have different opinions about it, and well, honestly, it's going to depend on where you are because there's so much variability and chance plays such a role. It's always about what you see in the field. You might be looking at uh, 200 acres. You might see 200 acres that day and if you don't see any birds on your 200 acres, well, the cold weather shut down the whole state. <laughs> That's right. You know? And the sky's it, falling. And the other side of the ridge, the guy over there might have been covered up in birds and he'd say, you wouldn't believe how active the birds were today. It had to be a great day. Or he's tight-lipped and not telling you because he mm -hmm. doesn't want to. Yeah. So the highs are 60 and 62 this weekend. I mean, that's that's very, very normal. But some guy, he said it's going to be a little colder, and he asked if uh, people, this is online on Facebook, um, if people thought that would slow things down. And one of the responses was, would you let it slow you down if you only got to breed once a year? And I was yeah. like, well, that is a great way to look. Probably not. That's <laughs> 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 pretty, pretty astute observation, I guess yeah. I'll say. And that's, that's what yeah, I was you, trying you to say. You could have a picnic with your honey in 60-degree weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, have to. I'll be out there. So, But uh, the things I have left to do, got a pattern in the shotgun, right? And uh, and I want really want to go put some birds to bed on Friday night. I would like to, even though I've already know where I'm going to sit Saturday morning, just the anticipation of knowing because I mean, I can make a slight game change, a plan, a change to the game plan mm -hmm. if I if I knew where a bird was, you know. But I just want to get out of there. But patterning the shotgun, that's what I'm doing today after work, and I feel like after I do that, I will be 100% yeah. ready to rock and roll. Yep. And oh, I'm he's cheated. <clears throat> Outlined a fist on a paper plate with a marker. Yeah. I'll do something. <laughs> works. Works. I might just set this this exact Gatorade bottle out there, yeah, you know, you and see see if it busts it. Yep. Um, so a few minutes ago, Zach, I'm not sure if I was recording or not when I said this. I talked about how I thought it, it was interesting. Like when you get a bird, if you're turkey hunting and you're hearing them gobble or you're seeing birds in the field or even if you harvest one and you're cleaning it and cooking it and when you have that meal, like thinking about why that opportunity is available, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I obviously am too young to remember it and I'd say that, you know, you guys probably are too. Leave you probably saw from the time of no turkeys to the you know what we have now. So, where the turkey flock was, where the population was in the state at one point in time, why it got there, and how it got back to where it is today. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it, do you know, do you have much knowledge on the pre European immigration, what the natural turkey flocks were like in the state back in the pre settler days? Well, that's that's uh, we got some general 
thoughts on it. Uh, Except the wildlife's kind of tricky. You mean you don't it's have tricky, an Excel yeah, sheet up there with the turkey population? Well, I know uh, Art Lander did a little piece several years ago, and somewhere he got he pulled ten million. I think it was ten million turkeys pre-settlement, and I don't remember if that was in Kentucky or what. And every every few years, the uh, we have a National Wild Turkey Symposium. It's like a gathering of all the turkey researchers and state biologists across country. And as part of that symposium, every year there's a there's a an article in there by folks who try to pull together state estimates and estimate like an overall figure for the for the country. And mm -hmm. I, I can't spout those offhand because honestly, for me, they're they're pretty out there numbers. You know, it's just really hard to say. What we do know is that before Europeans settled the continent, there were a lot of turkeys in North America. Tur wild turkeys are native to North America. Now, the, the native peoples had domesticated wild turkeys at some point, probably the most likely they think the Mexican subspecies, mm -hmm. so that's Meliagris galapavo, galapavo. You know, it's like the type specimen we call it. And so when the Europeans came over and we did all this conquering stuff and, you know, trade, those birds, wild turkeys got sent to Europe and were domesticated there and brought back. And so mm -hmm. you had like two lines of domestication. Anyway, all that say there was lots of turkeys on the landscape here. And it was probably across a lot of North America, but Native Americans used the land, not exactly like we use it today, obviously, but they used it. Mm -hmm. They managed, yeah, they know, did. in their mind, and they did and control for their burns. purposes. They did, you know. Absolutely, they cleared land, you know, all this, and that probably helped the turkeys to mm -hmm. a large extent. And you know, it, I'm sure it varied place to place, but there were a lot of turkeys, and and then so you fast forward through European settlement, we pretty much came in and changed things drastically, conquered. It looked to the early settlers like unlimited resources, yeah. you know. This is a story we all get taught when you go to college to study wildlife management, but you know, if hopefully a lot of the public understands that we had this widespread bounty of wildlife across the continent, not just turkeys, but including turkeys, and we really decimated it. We really did not foresee the coming wave of settlement, change mm -hmm. to the land, and the loss of critters like turkey. Well, think and about so bison and elk too. It's amazing. Oh, no. yeah. Isn't it crazy? It's unbelievable. Well, I mean, and, and, and the window of this happening, really, I mean, so tight. We, nib we, we nibbled at it, but once railroads hit and everything, I really, from 1870 to 1910, we just waylaid. You know, you, I mean, you know how you see white-tailed deer in, a, in a subdivision and they just aren't that afraid of you? Mm -hmm. You know, you can walk up pretty close to them. Mm -hmm. Or in Mammoth Cave National, or the state park the other day, I was there and I was literally 20 feet from a deer and it was just eating on some May apples and I was just sitting there watching and. Thinking back home in Shelby County, this would never happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I wonder if that's how the animals were back then, kind of more tame towards people, not really seeing it. Because oh, how in the world do these people wipe out all these animals with muzzleloaders? Is what I want to know, you know? It, it would vary, I'm sure, because some of the, the tribes, you know, they would have been putting pressure on, mm -hmm. on wildlife, but they probably had their own cultural norms similar to how we have to have regulations today, yeah. you know? Um, so there were probably, they pro hope, you know, I'm assuming, in some ways, they probably measured how much hunting pressure well, they put. Indiscriminate and so slaughter was not. It wouldn't have been in their best interest, no, you know. It Plus, wasn't they tolerated. were wildlife, like bison, you know, they're going to move mm -hmm. big distances, and some of these peoples were nomadic to a certain degree or, you know, used different, you know, they'd move around a lot. So they probably tried to reduce their impact, and so maybe that did foster yeah. some of the populations being more naive, mm -hmm. especially for, I mean, 
for for black powder, yeah. you know, for for the firearms that that the European brought. And so wildlife just couldn't adapt. We overwhelmed things, and and we really just exploited and exploited. And so it's truly amazing we did it like Sidley in such a short period. I mean, a hundred years we wiped out most critters, and so really accelerated after cartridges improved. You know, from 1870 on, and market hunting, and and and. Yeah. Yeah, and just if you look at the passenger pigeon, I mean, there oh, were God, the millions pigeon. in 1880, extinct by 1914. Hmm. It's really oh, unbelievable to people today. You know, you think you see a lot of, when you see pigeons fly, you know, out of a road underpass or a barn or something, you think, oh, you know. But we can't fathom the passenger pigeon. I mean, the native critter that puts dove populations and every other population we think of just about to shame. We yeah. cannot fathom what, what it would have been like. And we know it was because by that point, when we still had pigeons, we had good eyewitness documentation oh, yeah. of their abundance. Heck, we probably had photograph back then, right? You said 1880. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, I've held, that was a trippy thing. I know we're getting off a little off. Um, but I did a piece on it, and Rick and I went to the Cincinnati uh, the Natural History Museum, mm -hmm. and I held a passenger pigeon stuffed. Man. And it was just the juxtaposition of going, right. I'm holding an animal that was shot in the 1890s that is now extinct. And there were billions of them. Well, and it's amazing. So that I hope that resonates what you just said beyond just you, because you're, you're a history buff, Lee. Yeah. So clearly it's going to resonate with you. But I hope it resonates with sportsmen. And to bring it back to turkeys, <laughs> to your point, mm -hmm. Chase, this is like folks got to understand that, you know, this resource with turkeys is not something we can take for granted because yeah. just in you know my short lifetime 39 years mm -hmm. i mean we at that time we were we were actively stocking turkeys because they were in very few parts of the state really by that point and you know, like i said how did we get there so from it's just from europeans because the last turkey stocking was in 97 is what i had well there was a couple other isolated attempts but yeah most of it was wrapped up by 97. so from Settlers coming in here and just, you know, basically decimating the resources mm -hmm. to where we are now. How did that take place? So when, when we finally, when it finally clicked, I don't know if it was with FDR or, or when would that have been? That, would it have been Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah. The, well, he, he began to, yes, he was the one who started saying, hey. The movement, you know, yeah. Uh, the passenger pigeon brings a lot of pain, but also it brought the fact that we now have elk. We now have, I mean, there's been many species that probably would be extinct that we now take for granted had the nation not revulsed from the fact that the passenger pigeon went extinct. That right. really, that really right. solidified in people's minds, yes, we will pay the price to do conservation because we see what happens. That's right. Late 1800s, early 1900s, the gross loss of wildlife. It was T.R. and John Muir, Gifford Pinchot, different realms. We're talking wildlife. We're talking our forests. Migratory you know, birds, just, Species Act, and oh, the Lacey Act were just huge. Yeah, incredible losses, and these people made the public aware so when we lost the passenger pigeon, we knew something was, was bad yeah. up. And turkeys, mm -hmm. yeah, they were relegated to the farthest, mm -hmm. most isolated places, you know, land between the lakes or at that time land between the rivers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, a, that was a rural, rural area. And we're just thankful that the birds were able to hang on. Now, uh, when we started releasing birds in the 70s, that was largely because prior attempts at taking those LBL birds and moving them wasn't successful. Mm -hmm. Their population got so low, there was there was honestly inbreeding yeah. and genetic depression, bottlenecks mm -hmm. essentially in genes. There just weren't enough alleles there 
to create the kind of diversity to support a population of animals in that mm -hmm. place. They weren't re-nesting. I mean, George Wright saw this stuff, and so at that time, several other states were, were working out deals where they went to states, the few states that had healthy turkey populations, and, and, and what's amazing is those states, like we got a lot of our birds from Missouri. Missouri, yeah. Missouri probably didn't have them in spades across their whole state. There were, there were areas that, mm -hmm. that, that they had them, but they, were, they carefully took birds, helped other states get established. We got, you know, we used those. We got in from several other states, Iowa, Mississippi, many others, and, and got our population established. Then we could, as our population grew, we started moving all about, you know. And so the, the sportsmen, who, who were hunting in the 70s and 80s, 90s, you know, were aware of this going on. And sure, there were poachers out there, you know, I've, I've seen in Happy Hunting Ground mm. from the, the early 80s, George Wright saying, now we've got to protect these birds. If you don't stop shooting these birds, poaching these birds, they're never gonna take. Yeah. And, and so there was some of that, but by and large, I think most sportsmen understood we were trying something big here. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Maybe some of them couldn't have foreseen the, the how lucky we've gotten with our turkey mm -hmm. poplars. Every county in the state has them, even in Fulton County, where there ain't a whole lot of trees, you know, mm -hmm. if you're a turkey to roost in. And so uh, that said, they're there, they're across the state, and and we've got hunting opportunity all the way around. So that said, you know, we've, we've back to like we said before, we've got to be conscious, conscientious of where that population is and how we got to care for it and going forward into the future. How close do you, because it sounds like we couldn't have gotten our turkey population going in the state, going strong again with what we had to work with. We had to work with other states and get birds from them to you know, diversify our population and just to bring more birds in because we just didn't have enough, right? Yeah, I think so. It could contrast it with bobwhite quail. All right, so, so quail were really hurt, you know, to a certain degree with settlement. But quail are just have a different habitat needs. You know, they they weedy, they, they are adapted to farmland where there's sufficient brushy cover mm -hmm. and weedy cover. So they were adapting to Kentucky's landscape, which was deforested. You know, don't forget about that. That's that's a big reason that we lost a lot of our turkeys. There were only places, a few places that had enough big trees to support turkeys, but we had quail. We never lost our native bobwhite quail. So they were able to, to flourish kind of fluctuate naturally, but turkeys are big enough, you see them, right? Hunters see them and they, they learn to pattern them and could exploit the resource down to the point where there were so few birds that, yeah, I don't think we would have, we would certainly not have the healthy population we have today if we had to rely on this population that had been so suppressed. So I wonder, and you said earlier that you don't think those states like Missouri who, who helped us out with getting our population going again, they weren't necessarily just covered up in the turkeys when they were helping us out. Were That's they? what makes this whole, the to me, and again, I, I wasn't there, I wasn't born until 81, but in piecing things together, in talking to my counterpart turkey biologists in other states, which was, is a great part of my position, you know, learning from those who've been around, right? You try to assimilate all this. It, it, it makes the achievement of turkey restoration so much greater when you put yourself in those shoes and the uncertainty of the times. Mm -hmm. I mean, catching wild turkeys, keeping them alive, transporting them is not an easy task, right? It requires a lot of dedication, a lot of patience, a lot of field ingenuity. Wildlife biologists, our technician, willing landowners, volunteers, all these people. So they were they were essentially conducting a big experiment, in my, mm -hmm. my opinion. And with no guarantees it was gonna work there 
Yeah. Or that, you know, who was to say, I'm sure they had hunters in their own state saying, don't take our birds, don't, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're taking our hunting opportunity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I guess I can understand that. But when you think about the higher calling or the higher cause that they were doing, it was, you know, the, the agencies and the, the diehard turkey hunters who wanted to see restoration happen, they stuck to their guns, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's so that we that. could gun turkeys in the future, yeah. everywhere. The other day I was driving on a country road to go farm pond fishing at a friend's, just not very far from here. It was Rick Hills. He went to Rick Hills farm pond, Zach. <laughs> mm. Mm. Well, I didn't want to give it up. It's a tough spot. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a little Jake flew across right in front of the road and I was thinking that would have never have happened. I was 17 before I ever saw a turkey in the wild and I was squirrel hunting and one flushed from a tree above me on property that a friend of mine owned that backed up to Knob State Forest in Bernheim, which right. is one of our Big locuses, property. you know. Right, yeah, core. And uh, core I was, I mean, right. I, I went to school and I told all my friends, my God, I'm, but I have to admit, it scared the fire out of me. I dropped my gun and hit the yeah. fetal position. That's how it was right behind me. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, so no, what no. happened there for the listeners was Lee just dropped his Sorry, yeah, <laughs> it still excites me. Well, obviously, yeah. But I mean, I, mean, I told just... everybody for a week, my God, I saw a turkey, I saw a turkey. Now you're driving down a country road going fishing and there's That's one right. flies across the road, so. So if you heard anything there, you're still hearing anything, it's uh, Lee's mic fell. He got yeah. so excited and animated. I wish you guys could see Lee sometimes. Yeah. Well, well I, I, I think it's awesome because no, right. passion comes through, man. I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, of people older than me who have said, yeah, I remember when there weren't turkey. I remember when there weren't deer. And what you just said, Zach, got me thinking. I wonder how close we were because it's what I was getting at when I was saying that they weren't covered up in birds, those states we got them from, right? I wonder how much further we would have had to have gone one year, two year, five years. How close were we? to not realizing, you know, the error of our ways to putting ourselves in a position where that restoration wouldn't have been possible. You know, that's what, that's what I, that's what I was kind of getting at. How close did we ride that line and how lucky did we get to turn things around when we did? And well, so if, if you're, t if we were to, so the, the success story with, with restoration did not come from the remaining few birds like at LBL. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Cause we tried. Mm -hmm. So when we started in the late seventies, we, when getting birds from other states, perhaps we could have delayed that by a decade or so. Oh, no, but I'm, I'm, but uh, I'm sorry if I'm not no. I, I was talking about on the on the front end. Like if we would have kept oh, on kept, kept on back, doing what we were doing. If we would have kept up doing what we were doing, could we have? If we would have gone two more years or five more years or just that short of a time frame, could we have put ourselves in a position to not have those birds in Missouri to to repopulate mm -hmm. other states with? You know, that's what I was getting at. Is how close did we actually ride that? that fine line back in you know the t 1910s or 20s or whenever it was that we were decimating populations how close did we actually get to very put, close yeah, very close it sounds like we were scary close yeah and again because like and i don't mean to pick on missouri i'm thankful that, that oh, yeah. there were t inaccessible places and i I shouldn't mm -hmm. say exactly, but but I think some of the places were in and around the Ozarks. Oh yeah, you know, the Irish wilderness and places there. Yeah, you know, it's some some tough terrain. It's similar to Eastern Kentucky, mm -hmm. and uh, it you know it makes me wonder. Well, why didn't turkeys hang on in Eastern Kentucky? Well, you can drive in Eastern Kentucky today, and it looks like a green blanket. Mm -hmm. That was not the case in 1900, 1920, 1930. The trees were cut. There was nothing left, despite that rugged topography. Yeah. So by chance, by just I don't know the the weird vagaries of human, of settlement across country. There were pockets that had big enough areas of big enough trees that that maintained these turkey populations. But had we not had this outcry for wildlife happening nationally, 
mid 20th century or you know teens 20s all that starting to happen if we hadn't had those clarion calls we could have lost the bird mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. those remaining pockets and then we wouldn't have had the yeah. ability to repopulate the species so it's crazy you know it, it just goes to show that how our collective consciousness has changed because we've it, it took this smoldering of conservation uh, the need for conservation from Teddy Roosevelt and people the few people in his era that, that called for that fast forward through the 30s when Kentucky Department of Fish and Game, mm -hmm. you know, we were starting to do restoration efforts. And, and just, again, think about how the landscape of Kentucky was different. Mm -hmm. Every every piece of property in this state, just about, I dare say, besides the few little Bernheims yeah. or the Mammoth mm -hmm. Caves or the LBL, the few little, w great as they are, and as significant as they were then, they were postage stamps in the grand scheme oh, yeah. of the state of Kentucky. The state of Kentucky, every farm had tobacco patches, mm -hmm. every farm had cattle, every, diversified, you know, so we had totally changed just in 100, 150 years what the landscape looked like and it could not support turkeys, wild mm -hmm. turkeys, across the landscape. And, you know, if we hadn't had this lucky, like I said, national movement that, you know, we got wind of it and, and we had a culture of being sportsmen here, you know, people grew up hunting small game, but once there was this talk of, of, of the possibility of species restoration and getting turkeys, getting deer from other states, Kentucky sportsmen rose to the occasion. Mm -hmm. the, the Fish and Game Commission at the time, you know, saw the need for that, and then eventually that led to the opportunities that George Wright helped usher in. All this to say that, you know, I'm very proud that sportsmen have funded conservation. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is why I, I hope that they remember that, or for those that are younger than me who may not even realize it, or even my generation who have forgotten it, but it's hunters' dollars and hunters' efforts that help bring the, the species back. So in today's era, when, you know, when I get questions about, well, why does our season come in so late? Or are we ever going to be, able, why can't we shoot three or four birds like some of these other states? Um, you know, that's where I want to try to have to yeah. think about how to talk with people about the realities <clears throat> of today and why maybe they should, I'm not saying we can't consider these things, but yeah. we're in a different state with our turkey population today. I just want them to know that in order to keep hunting turkeys and have reasonable hunting opportunities, we got to be careful about the resource. Yeah. Right? You know, I'm trying to draw all the sportsman ethic into things here well, people if just I'm need doing to, a bad job. When of you're it. out there in the field and Say, uh, say you're out there in the field this Saturday morning and you, you know, you hear that turkey on the roost or, or something, you should realize that the, the reason you're hearing that is because of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you're out there pursuing the animals and therefore paying into conservation. Mm -hmm. And you know, being a steward of the land, that's taking it a whole nother, to a whole nother step and just realize that the reason you're hearing that bird is because people have hunted um, for them in the past. You know, it's a, resources need to be used and to be maintained in a lot of ways, right? I That's mean, right. Yep. the more people have interest in them, the more that, you know, conservation work is going to be put into them. So it's really turkey hunters who have made turkey turkeys possible in the state in some, not entirely, but in some sense or in some way. Oh, uh, definitely. I mean, they, they hire the, the conservation officers that, you know, protect their resources. They hire biologists that, yeah. you well, know, try to advise landowners and do studies to help wildlife, so it's it's all a huge, you know, they hire uh, our information folks mm -hmm. who help get the word out, you know, mm -hmm. so that we can talk to different audiences. We can talk to kids in a classroom, we can talk to beginning hunters, we can talk to veteran hunters, 
you know, it, all, it takes a range of, of <coughs> folks getting the message out, and all that is possible because of funding from hunters, well, essentially. That's why I wish, so there, say you got somebody who hunts, right? Just here's, uh, here's John Doe, he's a hunter, right? John Doe could have one of two different mentalities. He could either think of himself as a, a hunter, or he can consider himself a conservationist. You know, like it's really a different mindset. Like some people, it's all about taking the game. You know, it's all about you know, going out there and being a success, successfully harvesting game. And then other people look at it as what they're doing big picture, a little bit bigger picture versus, you know, macro versus micro. No. Does that make sense at all? It I would, does. I and wish so what I would say is part of what I try to do is dissolve that barrier. Yeah. I want you to be a hunter conservationist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody can have, you know, it's great to harvest an animal. It is. It's great to get a bag limit of, you know, all this stuff. But come on. It can't be all about that, right? Because mm -hmm. this, this is not a uh, this is not uh, a baseball game, football game, basketball game where it's literally about the score. Who has the, the score at the end of the game wins. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, harvest that thing and be thankful you got it. But be thankful you got the opportunity to be free in this country and get mm -hmm. out there and pursue it. Mm -hmm. And understand that you know to maintain wildlife takes a lot of people, a lot of habitat. And you know you're not going to be successful every time. That doesn't mean you didn't have a successful hunt. Oh no doubt. Yeah, I you know? completely agree with that. I mean, some mm -hmm. of my best moments in the woods have not ended with me leaving the woods with something over my shoulder, dragging a deer That's by right. me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You got. And honestly, the more you go, the more you learn to appreciate those things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's a mindset a lot of people have of what the ultimate goal is or what they're doing big picture by being out there. You know. And that earlier I mentioned Steve Rinella. I said I've been watching him. That's yeah. one thing I do like about. Steve sure. Rinella versus some other TV hunters that I'm not going to mention. Some, sometimes you watch a, a TV show and it's like the goal is to get a 200-inch whitetail on the like, ground. You know, the goal yeah. is that. But I like the shows that kind of educate you more about mm -hmm. what's well, going absolutely. on behind the scenes. About the, so. And that's why I love uh, our show. Yeah. yeah. It's well, more holistic. It brings in everything. It's not just, you know, it is. playing the do, 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 do music and the guys, boom, you know. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, it's more about that. Yeah, I try to focus on the teaching opportunity or techniques or, or conservation, mm -hmm. those aspects of it. And that's something I try to keep in mind every day, you know, with the TV show. Every time I watch a segment somebody puts together, I'm thinking, what's the message here? It's well, not just about seeing a, a hunt unfold. It's about what's the what can people take away from this other than the fact that they got to watch a deer get shot, you know? Absolutely. Well, yeah. I, as a professional conservationist who, like, is, is always, you know, flustered at the challenges we have to overcome, right? Because conservation's hard. You know, when I, when the thing I like about Ranella and, you know, the focus on the show about using that animal, eating, mm -hmm. you know, all his recipes you can get online, yeah. it's great. His book, all this stuff, it, it's, it's awesome because in a way I feel like that is conservation. If you're helping move somebody from a straight up kill or no kill, you know, mm -hmm. Success is defined by killing an animal, mm -hmm. right? If we can move them into thinking success is also, you know, finding how to how to enjoy that animal uh, at the dinner table the best way you can, or mm -hmm. sharing that meal with a neighbor who doesn't hunt, mm -hmm. who's never eaten it. You know, that's a that's adding value to that animal you harvested or that you attempted to harvest. And to me, that's part of the conservation because maybe that hunter now, yeah, he's going to be continue to be serious about getting his animal, but hopefully he's going to he's going to treasure that resource even more. Yeah. You know what I mean? Be more some of your funnest days sometimes involve being skunked. Well, I mean, you I learn mean, a new I always like species. seeing wildlife at least. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. I've, I've learned a lot of native grasses I've been out, and I was like, you know, I'm not, it's not going well today, but 
I'll tell you, as far as, as far as good for your soul. When I was talking earlier about, actually, I opened up today talking about how my game plan for the hunt on Saturday was different than I normally go about it because I wanted to, you know, give Kristen a good hunting experience and I wanted her to see wildlife, right? Well, she's been teaching me a lot of wildflowers and, and, you know, different plants now. And so over the course of the last year, I've learned, you know, a lot of these species, right? Especially like spring ephemerals, so the spring wildflowers that you see right now. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, it makes the world look so much different. Mm -hmm. Two years ago when I walked through the woods, oh, there's a purple flower. There's mm -hmm. a, oh, there's some white flowers and a bunch of grass over I'm there. I'm trying to improve on that, well, now, know, especially with my trees and all. It's, now uh, when I walk it's through, a challenge. When I walk through the woods now, it's like, oh, there's some trout lilies and may apples up there by those may apples. There might be some morels because that's an elm tree. And, you know, and you start thinking differently and you see so much more detail in the landscape when you learn those little things. And it's the same, same with wildlife. Like, I don't know much about waterfowl, but I see ducks, you know, quite a bit. And that's just another thing that if I could learn more about those ducks, even though I'm not super interested in hunting them, like it just opens your mind up. And it's the world's so much more interesting when you can look at something and, and know how it ties into what's going on next yep. to it you know and I, I wish more people would would take interest in that as well yeah because it really is fascinating to be able to go outside and and actually have a feeling that you might know what's going on around you mm -hmm. versus just being completely well, lost at least and, know a few trees and know yeah. all the you know these well, species like this and this you know and, and that's right and, and i think it's okay to not know what that purple flower is or what yeah. this is the fact that you noticed it yeah is good it shows that you're a, you're evolving and you're developing as a sportsman yeah. i mean maybe that sounds too corny but i really think it's parallel to to the evolution of a hunter that mm -hmm. probably if you you know through hunter education you know work for the agency you've probably heard this where you start out when you start hunting your goal in your mind is to harvest an animal mm -hmm. as you as you do that as you move down the course of your hunting career it comes it becomes more about the experience, mm -hmm. getting other people involved or mm -hmm. hunting with other people, right? Sort and so what you're saying is 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 a good, healthy experience. You're you're making connections, you know. And, and I I frequently have to remind myself that you know you got to get out of your comfort zone sometimes. Mm -hmm. So when you can walk through the woods and start noticing other stuff, you're not just looking for deer tracks. You're yeah. noticing, oh, there's some flower I didn't notice, or mm -hmm. wonder why that's there. Oh, what what is it about this spot I'm yeah. in? You know. It might make you come back and you might hunt that area and have success hunting, but you've just thought in a different way. And all that stuff is important, man, because yeah. there's, life is too short to not notice what's around us. No, know? that's a hundred percent agree. And it's, I mean, it's, it's fun too. I mean, just learning that new stuff, it makes you, like I said, it makes you feel more connected. Yeah. Um, my, I think the evolution that you were talking about a second ago, um, I just, I really want to get to know the animals more. You know, yeah. like learn their behavior, learn why they do what they do. And every animal is an individual, so they aren't all the same. You can't learn the whole species, but, you know, there are things you can learn about them that help make you a better hunter. And so I really like, like the challenge for me in hunting right now, let's just use deer, is when I do have that harvest, right, it's pretty much built on a lot of failed attempts. And a lot of times when I've been in the wood, woods and I've just seen deer and, I, and I've developed a game plan and ultimately that harvest isn't, it's not that one day. That one day wasn't successful and everything else was unsuccessful. It's a build. You know, it's a yeah. it's a build up to that successful harvest and that then becomes a successful season. You know, does that make sense at all? It totally does, man. And it's not yeah. just that, it's it's years cuz I've been lucky enough to hunt the same property for 10 13 years now. And really every deer I harvest on that property takes me back all the way to when I first started hunting it because that's when I started learning about the deer on that property. Does that, you know? And well, it's just, it definitely makes sense, man. I mean, when you were saying that for some reason, it was dawn, 
One time when I was I was probably seventeen or eighteen, I had a, a shot. I was bow hunting, and I had a I had a shot at a cow, mm -hmm. and was getting. I was sitting down in my my stand, and I was getting ready. The the thing was being really calm. I, I it was I had a chance to stand up, and I think mm -hmm. I could have stood up, and and gotten drawn. But what happened? I had this new hunting knife, and the scabbard was hard plastic. And that clanged against the metal of my API mm -hmm. hunter stand. And of course, the cow was spooked, it was gone instantly. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm not kidding, just about every time when I'm in my climber, mm -hmm. bow hunting, and I'm, I'm set up and you know getting ready to turn around and sit down hunting, I think about that. Mm -hmm. And so that little, that little silly, mm -hmm. stupid moment. moment informs how I go about hunting. And, and it, this, again, it may sound corny, but it helps me think about how I'm going to position myself, how I'm going to move yeah. if I see a you know a critter from a certain angle or a different spot, and so you yeah you build on this 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 you know knowledge. And you, you didn't that. bring that knife, honey. I never use that knife again. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm just you know there's tons of stuff. So I don't know if that's exactly no, what that, you're meaning, true. but these little bitty things or big things potentially. If you you know like I said, I missed it. I've never shot a gobbler with a bow. Yeah. I don't like to say that as a turkey coordinator. I'll probably, you know, probably lose. I say most people have. a lot of cred, but I, you know, I've just told you I've shot several and not found them. So. I, I, well, I've totally blew it. I mean, I literally shot three feet over the back of one from under fifteen yards away. Yeah. On the it was like I just lost it. The adrenaline, <laughs> I mean, adrenaline, it just, can make it do was crazy amazing. Stuff. There's nothing like. I mean, it's hard to beat a gobbler in the moment. I mean, as far as buck fever like feeling, yeah. call it buck fever, but it just should be called gobbler fever. Yeah. And so, you know, all that stuff just builds into your, your hunting career and experiences. That, when I'm out there, if I'm coyote hunting, okay, like if a coyote gets spooked and starts taking off, I don't know like which experiences it was that led, led me to realize it, but like I can look at that coyote's body language and I can tell if it's going to stop or not, you know? Like I can tell if, if he's, if he's five seconds away from stopping and turning around to look and see, just based on the way he's striding. Hmm. Or when deer are in a field, you know, if all the, if, if a couple of young bucks look a certain direction, I might not see anything over there, but I'm keyed in on what they're looking at because chances are there's something they know that I don't know, but I can know something's about to happen because I know how to read them. Does that make sense at all? I'm not, yeah. I'm not that good with turkeys, but you know, you said something the other day during our calling show with turkeys about the hierarchy and how it's something that humans, you know, don't even understand yet. And you talked about mm. the colors on their heads, you know, they, they have right. these beautiful blue and white and red heads that change colors all the time. Yeah. And how Amazing. that means something to the turkeys. Now, what, what did you mean by that? Like what, because I, I, I obviously watched the call-in show, I was there for it live, and then I re-watched re it afterwards, but I, right. had, I wanted to know more about that. When the, you say the hierarchy of turkeys, it doesn't all come down to the length of the spurs. Are you saying those colors on the heads may mean more than anything? Yeah, just the, the, the breeding system that turkeys have, you know, they, we all know we wear camouflage and don't wear red, white, and blue for safety, mm -hmm. but we also shouldn't wear it because turkeys can see colors more so than some other critters. Mm -hmm. Now they may not see it in exactly the same red, white, and blue like we think, like we perceive it, yeah. but they're able to perceive certain colors. Otherwise, nature would not have bestowed upon them this crazy ability to to like on the flip of a switch turn yeah. from red to white to red white red white and blue you know it's yeah. like what that wouldn't exist if it didn't mean something to turkeys That's so true. now i'm I, what i was i guess what i was trying to say is there's probably some sort of system that those birds have figured out uh, you know like 
in battles, mano a mano, or mm -hmm. a group of birds versus some dominant bird or whatever. They have fought, they've sparred, they've, you know, and they've figured out who the boss is or, you know, who's like the, the aging boss and who's the up-and-comer mm -hmm. that's trying to exert his, you know, these are the fascinating things that I doubt we'll ever really know. You know, in some ways I don't, I, I don't want there to, it scares me to think of the technology that would have to exist to allow us to figure out those things. But it's fun to speculate on. Yeah. When you can see that snood extend like mm -hmm. freaking six inches in like yeah. a split second as he's getting, as this gobbler is getting ready to destroy your Jake decoy. I was watching that last night, uh, a certain situation <laughs> I can't go into, but amazing just to watch those critters work. And so, the, again, we don't know what that hierarchy is. It's probably, though, pretty well defined mm -hmm. uh, among the turkeys. And so it's just a really fun thing to speculate on. And, you know, this is a thing, you know, in, uh, when our populations were growing and growing and, you know, turkey numbers were you know, arguably higher than they've ever been, you know, which was probably 10, 12 years ago or so maybe, uh, there were a lot of gobblers. We had a lot of good hatches, produced a lot of gobblers, and so you had, you know, and you know, I've experienced it, hunters have told me too. You had these situations, you had a lot of gobblers in one, one spot, or you had several gobblers that morning. And so some years, you don't get that, you know, you're not able to see all that action, but it's still happening in some places, so. Yeah. It's a, it's really, really neat to think about. So when I see turkeys out in the field, when that gobbler's head turns white, right? Yeah. That I always, for some reason to me, that means it, it's on. Like that gobbler is really interested. Do, is there, a, do you know anything about the color spectrum, what it means, like a hotter turkey is going to nah, be I, white, I, blue? I don't want to speculate on that. Like yeah. I say, I, some, I mean, I'm sure everybody's going to have an opinion. It's, yeah. it's, it know. probably comes down to your personal experience. Oh, I remember when I was yep. 14 and that turkey with that white head, he just came in hammering. <laughs> so it's still stuck in my mind. Yeah, know, and there's truth to it, later. but I, I've also seen birds flared up and had lesser white, you know, but mm -hmm. acting kind of the same. Uh, you know, point is it probably varies a little bit, but certainly yeah. if you're seeing that kind of change, yeah, it's so, fixing to happen. Something's so. going on. You see yeah. that snoot extend on the head change colors, and you know something has sparked something within that turkey. So yep. He's having a reaction to something. Yep. It's just hard to predict That's, what, what he's going to do or if cool. he'll do it or if he'll do it again or, you know. And turkeys really are. Chad said this on the show, and I've, I've heard this said before, but they really are the prettiest, ugly Bird. I that was great. I mean, because they, they are. Yeah. If you look at them, man, their face has got random hairs coming out of it. And mm -hmm. this, they got this dangly They thing are the prettiest ugly bird. But then you really look at the colors, like Zach was talking about. It's like, man, I can't imagine ma making something that was prettier than that at the same time, you know? And it's the spectacle. Again, when you're watching that dude display and strut and spit and drag his <clears> wings <throat> and drum and all this stuff collectively, and it gives you chills as you're sitting there. I mean, hopefully you've not, you're not just hopefully you're still breathing, right? Yeah. If you can't get excited at a gobbler within, you know, 30 yards acting that way, then something's wrong with you. You need yeah. to go home. How, <laughs> now, how, how smart are they? What's the, the spectrum of their intelligence? I mean, because I, I, I personally don't feel like turkeys are that smart. <laughs> it might be cutting them not well, enough I remember credit. the movie is, you're dumb as a turkey. Have you ever heard that saying? Yeah. Well, used to use I that. just know a few years ago, I was on a turkey hunt, and these turkeys were in the field, and I was probably 150 yards from them, and this coyote started putting the stalk on them, right? So they all pitched up into the trees right there with an eyesight of me. Mm -hmm. Coyote comes around my way, <laughs> shoot him. And I got a dead coyote laying there, so I walk over and get the coyote out of the field. And about 30 minutes later, those turkeys pitched down, they walked right over there to me. And boom, 
Yeah. And toasted one of them, too. More. I was like, man, those turkeys, that wasn't a very smart move. <laughs> you know, that was a pretty dumb move on their part. But it's hard to tell. They probably have, intelli like, instinctual intelligence. Well, Benjamin Franklin you know? wanted them to be the, the national, national bird, bird over bald yeah. eagle. You know, I am really mad about our state flower being a goldenrod. I think that we could have done much better. That's just me. Now, after I've been learning these wildflowers, I'm like, why? why Kentucky lady slipper. That'd it, be my vote. Yeah. yeah. I like Jack in the Pulpit. That's my favorite. Yeah. But uh, it's a weed. It's not even a flower. It just kind of bugs me. But. Uh, yeah. Well, I was going to say. Um, well, a minute ago, I had something I wanted to ask you about because you, you started on this, but we didn't quite get there. We were talking about conservation. We were talking about how we decimated the populations unknowingly back in you know the 1800s, early 1900s, and then we started doing work. And we talked about how all the you know, the the bit of luck and all the work that went into bringing the Kentucky's turkey population back. And then you started mentioning something that I know you hear a lot and I hear a lot, and that has to do with the opening, right? Right. And so right now, our season is set to, to open the Saturday closest to April 15th, right? Mm -hmm. And of and you said in, that in the past, it used to be exactly on April 15th. So do you mind just explaining for people who are listening why we changed from the 15th to the Saturday closest and also why the 15th is kind of our target? Does that make sense at all? Yeah. So in regards to the exact date, that's really a social yeah. concern, right? Mm -hmm. So I was there during that yeah. so process. You, so yeah. So people I'm, are angry. It opened on Tuesday. I can't get off work. It opened on that's Thursday. That's when it opened on exactly April 15th. Yeah. People are like, that guy can get off work on Tuesday and he gets better shelter birds than I do. It's kind of so. like dove season, how dove season is now. You know, it yeah. can open at any random day of the week. So Right. Yeah. So, so. Historically, I think there was some strategy in terms of, of the turkey conservation of, of when we would open our season, knowing that people are most people are going to try to go, or their preference would be to go opening season early in turkey restoration. If your goal is to ensure that we don't over-harvest these birds that are trying to get a foothold mm -hmm. on the landscape, so this is decades ago for our, us. Our first turkey you would probably 72 was our first turkey hunt. Our first 1972. 1972, so that would have been almost 40 years ago, 39 years ago. In 1978, we harvested 44 birds. So you're saying back, in, back, so back then, yeah. it would be more justifiable to open on a weekday because for the exact reason that you wouldn't put all this pressure on the birds all at once. Mm -hmm. and, and you would spread it out. Essentially, you're trying to limit some of that harvest. Mm -hmm. As populations got established, you know, we kind of flip-flopped. We went from... You know, we were opening, uh, I believe we were opening on a Wednesday uh, for a while, and then the April 15th thing, it really doesn't matter. But with those concerns about opening on a Saturday, we were at a point where our population could sustain it. And so it was, that's fine, sure. Yeah. You know, as a, as a species manager trying to make sure we harvest sustainably, right? I just, you know, I'm always looking at the harvest total, and I love it when we ha have nice high harvest totals and we love to talk about breaking records and all this stuff but you know most hunters know that turkey populations aren't quite what they were a few years ago mm -hmm. so in light of that and we don't have to talk about that here but you know, uh, when you have populations that aren't just growing by leaps and bounds and you've got to sustain that population you, you don't want to you don't want to over harvest and so that gets to the next point of your of your question I think was about why we open around April 15th. Yeah, why that's right? kind of like the target. It seems yeah. like that's the target. It is, and and that the thought process there is that we're we're either catching it when most of the turkeys have been most hens have been bred and are going off to lay, mm -hmm. or have already started to lay. Mm -hmm. You know, and and you, if you've driven around the state in the last 
week and a half, you've noticed lone hens out in the field. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why is she by herself? Mm -hmm. She's laying eggs. She's going off to lay an egg. Yeah. She's she's starting to do. She's initiating her nest. Mm -hmm. You know, she's going to do that for a couple of weeks, and she's going to start incubating. So, what we by trying to time the season, uh, where most of the hens have have been bred, or or are laying, because you know it's it's not an exact thing. There's a general time. Basically, the first two weeks of April is when a lot of breeding is happening, and really three weeks, but. It's going to vary a little bit year to year based on some you know weather patterns, but it's generally going to be in this time frame when when the bulk of this happens, and you want that breeding to happen because if we don't, if we got out there on March fifteenth, to put pressure on them and just do ha, have hunt like we hunt now, we would kill gobblers that never got the chance to breed. Mm -hmm. And all things being equal, you would see you would more than likely see an impact on your hunting because you're removing birds and it goes back to that hierarchy some great research and and you know this is this is getting to some you know follow diehard hunters are going to be following podcasts that uh, and twitter turkey tuesdays mike chamberlain he's a professor at university of georgia others a lot of great info out there they're doing work out there that's showing how important this is it, this hierarchy stuff because if we if we hunt too early shoot too many by killing males, we're having an impact on the population. Mm -hmm. We used to think it was about hens. We certainly we don't hunt hens in the spring um, because they're going to nest, right? Hopefully, yeah, yeah. but it could be that hunting too much, too hard, too soon means breeding is disrupted, and when that happens, that's potentially a, a bad thing. Yeah, so, no, that makes sense. So basically, we're trying to to time our season. Like you said, they breed really for the three weeks. So really, we're saying, hey. Well, it's a big period. I yeah. mean, there, there's going to be some really early breeders and some really late breeders. What we're trying to do, we cannot set seasons in response to that, especially in any one year. We have to manage for the middle, the bulk of the, the essentially the data, the data that tell us this is when turkeys breed and start to nest or are starting to incubate their nest. So we got to time it so that basically we're starting to hunt around that time. You still get some good hunting action. Mm -hmm. You know, even mm -hmm. though you've been hearing them gobble, and maybe you've mm -hmm. even seen them court in the fields. I think that drives all this, don't you? People hear gobbling, well, they just are hunting? excited. You know. It's what you said before, Chase. It's the awakening of spring. The yeah. cool things about turkey, they're a metaphor for how the earth wakes up yeah. in spring, right? Yeah. So they're seeing that. I don't blame them for getting excited, but there, there is some strategy into when you open it, yeah. you know? Yeah. If we were to open that early, then we better be limiting limiting the number of hunters that we let out there, yeah. right? And and who, that's not popular with people right no. now. There are states that you have to get drawn to hunt turkeys, but I can just tell you that were I to propose limiting capping the number of hunters, <laughs> it's going to be hard to ever get that through. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, you don't want to do that. I'm not yeah. going to do that. But if people force they open a betting line, want... I'm jumping all over the other side. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so, just saying, though, that this, these are things you got to think about. So basically, by opening it on the 15th, we're, we're ensuring that the hens have had a chance to be bred and that right. they are they're nesting and successfully laying eggs and that we are going to have uh, poults and we are going to have more turkeys next year. Like, it's what we're basically doing is guaranteeing that and saying we're not going to put a stop. We're not going to, you know, put a stop to this this year. We're not going to take a chance of massively disrupting the breeding season, you know, in spots here and there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and having you know much fewer turkeys next year and the year after and the year after, 
Right. It's to say we're, we're doing our best, all things being equal, to, to be judicious about it. Because here, we, we're not going to be able to control the weather here in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. When hens are on the nest, trying to hatch, those poults are trying to survive, not get eat, got to get, they're trying to survive the weather, they're trying to survive the predators, they're trying to survive the bush hog or the hay mower. Yeah. Uh, all that stuff we can't really control. We can control how much pressure we put on them. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, you still get a lot of great opportunity. Yeah. yeah. With our season <clears throat> opening the way it is. So it's a balance. Now. I think that's a good bit of information for people to know. So I wanted that to get out there. And I got two more things for you, Zach. Yep. <clears throat> One of them. Oh, you were talking a second ago about hens going to nest. Now, I am not sure on this. I, I thought I knew, but I'm not sure I do. So tell me, <clears throat> do. So a, let's say a hen has a clutch of eggs. How big is a clutch usually? Or maybe depends. Nine, <coughs> twelve. I was just say there's nine eggs in that, that clutch, right? Yep. Nine eggs in there. Are they all from the same tom, or is she bred each day by perhaps a different tom, and each of those eggs has a ge different genetic makeup? So can is is one hen's clutch of eggs from the same tom, or could they theoretically be from a, a group of different birds? Could be from multiple. So she could be mm. rebred each day for that for that egg that she's laying at that point in time. You're, yeah, there could be variation for sure. Yeah, they're that's what promiscuous species, and their biology is such that she can store sperm. You know, the the way that sperm get, uh, fertilizes the the egg, <laughs> it's it's highly variable and it's crazy stuff. You know, compared to what we're used to. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, there can be you know. Lots of fathers potentially. So when you and see, even when she's bred, she may continue to breed. Yeah. And and maybe those latter breedings don't do anything. I mean, it's just you, just really hard to tell. But they know there's some variability there. Yeah, that's uh, that was a question I always wanted because you know that's you think about a hen being bred. Okay, now she's going to lay it, but she could continue to be bred after already starting her nest. Because do they lay one egg a day like a like yeah. most birds? <laughs> so if right. she has nine, they might or, skip a day early in it, but it averages out to about an egg a day. So if she has 12 eggs, she's been nesting for 12 days. Like basically going to that nest and laying an egg and then getting the heck out of there. Because that's what they do, right? They get away from their nest um, during mm -hmm. the early stages so they don't right. draw attention to it, don't draw predators right. to it. And then when do, do they eventually start laying on the nest for periods of time? Because I've walked up on a hen turkey before in the woods where I've been for me to leave from it, mm -hmm. you know, seven feet. And um, <clears throat> could I mean, that hen did not want to leave that nest. So probably she had been incubating for a while. Because so. the once they start incubating, they're more likely to sit there the longer time they've invested. Yeah. So Brett Collier, professor at Louisiana State University, he likes to say, Ultimately, that hen is going to look out for herself if it comes down to it. She is going to flush, probably. I mean, yeah, potentially a bush hog can run over her. That does happen. But by and large, she's eventually going to escape. But she will sit there and push the envelope longer if she's been on that nest longer. Mm -hmm. She's more, invested more resources. Yeah, more skin right? in the game at that point. Yeah, exactly. So if, uh, if you do, have, say somebody's walking through the woods and they do happen to flush a hen off a nest, will she return to those eggs? It, it's going to vary. The, the longer she has invested, more likely she is to come back, we mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there is tons of variation. And it probably has to do with the continued level of disturbance. I mean, if you're in there checking every other day to see if you come back, well, yeah. I wouldn't come back if I was her. Yeah. Yeah. But very possible that she might. It's just a hard thing to know. Point is, uh, try to get out of there and you know, hope that she does, but there's going to be a lot of nest abandonment. There's just no that's, doubt about it. It's crazy how turkeys can know the landscape so well that she can get back to that one spot mm -hmm. that's hidden in brush and cover. She can get back there every day. Well, and, and sometimes she doesn't put it in brush or cover. That's yeah. a crazy thing. 
and, and we don't understand about totally about why they nest where they do. You know, it's some of the animals are amazing that way. You should teach yeah. them how to nest in trees, Zach. That'd be beneficial. It'd been, it, yeah, it'd potentially be easier, but then you got owls to worry about, and <laughs> owls are deadly on. You know, yeah. taking stuff off the limb. Oh, I love owls, though, man. Uh, me too. You know, people always ask me, oh, they don't know. This is a, kind of a random question. People have asked. Um, if you, you know, died and you could come back as any animal, what would it be? You know, hmm. nobody wants to be a, a bait fish. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think. A rodent, that's not a, very popular. A lot of people say hawks or something. Like, I would want to be something that could fly. I think it'd be an owl. I think, yeah. I, I think owls. I, are, I, want, I would want to be a bird. I think the owls are the coolest of birds, though. I mean, they're like the ultimate. The wisdom of the owl. They're right? the ultimate predator, though. I mean, with their cock-out ears. And I already kind of got cock-out ears, so I kind of feel like an owl. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they the way that they're built for nocturnal hunting. And they're ninjas. And, they can, silent. they can see, uh, their, their wings are made to be silent, like they don't yeah. make noise when they fly through the air, and they can see something through the snow, or you know, pinpoint it based on their hearing, it's just crazy. I'd be an owl, mm-hmm. uh, I really like owls. <laughs> and so, Zach, one other thing, this is the last thing. On the turkey calling show, somebody asked a question about what call they needed to learn, right? Mm. Um, say, I'm a new turkey hunter, and yeah. you know, what is the most important thing for me to know? And you said it really, you know, just basic helps, but it comes down mm-hmm. to cadence, right? Yeah. So, yeah. It, I just was going to do a turkey call, and you uh, too fast, too slow. I mean, how how perfect does that cadence have to be? Is there some wiggle room to it? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, just uh, would that get it done? You think? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If that bird's fired up and wanting to come to you, yeah. it'll get it done. Do you think that was too slow, too fast? Again, it depends on the situation. If he was fired up and he's wanting to make it happen, that'll be good enough. Yeah. But it may not be good enough to pull him in from 100, 200 yards away. You yeah. just don't know. My, my biggest tip, I guess, is, and I, I fall into the trap of, if I'm hearing birds calling, I get immediately like uh, comp- competitive and I want to try to out-call her. Yeah. I want to pull him away, right? Mm-hmm. But stop for a minute. Yeah. You probably ain't going to accomplish no. that. Listen, instead, take that opportunity to listen to her and get that cadence down because mm-hmm. then you'll get on her language and you might tick her off yeah, she, she may come at, come to you but one foul note and you're done correct yeah if, if well potentially yeah. i really right. try not to call much like I, I used to get out there in the woods i mean i just be scratching away i'd be i'd take two strikers with me because i'd wear straight through this one it'd be whittled all the way down when just you, listen when do you prefer a purr i don't purr much number one because i'm not good at it but number two it's a it's a fighting it's a, it's a, like, I'm agitated sound. Yeah. It sounds cool when you do it, when you hear really good callers do it. And when you got a bird who is really jacked up, you know, he's fixing to whoop your decoy or whatever he's doing, I'm sure it would be great. And I'm sure there are great hunters. They can really lay it on thick and maybe, maybe instigate him to keep doing this display. Your average hunter, I, I don't know. I, I don't do it because I'm not good enough at it. To, to do it on a slate is about the only way I can do it. Mm-hmm. That's all. And that's, all. Yeah, that's, that's, all. that's movement. I'm not usually in a blind. Mm-hmm. And so that's extra movement. If, if I'm at a point where I think it's going to be beneficial, which is in kind of a typical, it's in a fighting situation, mm-hmm. he's too close. I don't want to be moving. Yeah. I use a mouth call. And again, I got a limited repertoire. Yeah. I've, I've killed enough birds that I know it works. Mm-hmm. And honestly, just hushing sometimes is the best advice. So as fun as it is, you know, do it and mess up. That gets back to your earlier point. Yeah. And you're going to figure out. Sometimes you're going to mess up, but sometimes it'll work. Yeah. I've been with like my dad or buddies, and I'm like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, you know, shut they up. keep calling, and I'm just, shut up. 
Uh, just like farmer, call, they want to, you know. Farmer always said on Kentucky Field, I grew up watching, don't call too much. And I'm saying, yeah. quit calling. But yeah. it burst. A lot of foul hunters are real mad about it. It's, it, it's it still fun, works. Though. So I'm like, well, I guess they were right. It's fun to call. But it, the, the whole purr thing kind of reminds me of deer hunting is a snort wheeze, man. And I've like, you know, you can snort wheeze at a buck and, you know, you can have a great experience, but you can see it on TV. It looks like it works great. A lot of times when you snort wheeze at a buck in the field, he is going the other way because he doesn't want a part of that fight, you know? But, it, you know, uh, I pretty much use a snort wheeze when I'm deer hunting, like, all right, I tried everything else. Like, yeah. I'll try this now. And uh, and but that's how I kind of look at the purr. I don't think I've ever purred a turkey. I might have tried to. I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I don't do it. I, I just, I've read some literature that's very high on it. You pretty sure. much said that when you call one time, they know exactly where you're at. That's what you said. They know exactly mm -hmm. where you're at. Unless it's so windy and you're downwind far enough that they just cannot hear you. If they can hear you, they've got a good idea where you are. So yeah. At that point, you know, you probably need to be eyes open and aware and patient. I mean, it's fun to call. You're not, you know, it's hard to resist that urge, but yeah. they're going to probably know where you are if they're within your shot. And the other thing I would say, and I think you agree with this, is that if you're, <clears throat> if you're out there and you're calling to a bird and you're getting gobbles and he's answering you and then all of a sudden he just goes lock lip, like, I've made this mistake before where five minutes later, you know, it feels like it's been an hour. Five minutes after he goes lockjaw on me, I'm thinking, okay, I got to make a move. I got to go to, he's not coming. I got, and then I'll, you'll stand up and sure enough, there's a turkey that came in silent, you know. Mm -hmm. It's really about keeping your eyes open and looking around. And I think being patient goes a long way with turkey hunting. But then you also got to know when to not be patient anymore. Because there's been times where I wouldn't have killed a bird if I, that's an interesting. Uh, Sorry, it's a text message. I forgot to mute it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's my oral camouflage. So there if I forget to mute my phone, at least I sound like any other. What critter was that, guys? That's a Lee question. I don't know. Oh, come on. It's part of, you got to notice it. There's a reason I pick it. So uh, it sounds like some kind of a hawk to me. Mm -hmm. This baseball team won the World Series in 1992 and 93. Oh, well, you did it because you're a fan the of the Blue Jays. No, this yeah, is okay, a Blue Jay because they're very common yeah. and it's. It's I guess, you know, like I, I was like, I've heard that a million That's times, right. but... The no. other one, my phone, my ring... I don't that, see as many Blue Jays as I did when I was younger. Are they in decline? That's not mm -hmm. exactly... that I'm worried I don't think that's exact. That's a Kate Slankard question. Yeah, that's <laughs> just Kate, one. But I, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't notice any decline in myself. I've got, I've got several. Cardinals is, is the other one I use for your, my ring. For your ring? See, my phone actually doesn't ring. Um, it has not made noise since I bought it when I turned everything to silent. So I miss a lot of calls. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. It I, literally is not. That's brilliant, though. Honey, you know, I have that silent policy, so I know I'm two hours late for fishing, but right. hey, silent policy. No, sorry, it literally does not. <laughs> I didn't right. know you called. Yep. Can, yep. Even <laughs> exactly. That's brilliant. Even James. if I turn it on loud right here, if I, like, click silent mode off, still will not ring. I've got it set up to never ring, ever. That's cool. So it'll vibrate, but it won't ring. And it just, I, di I didn't do it, like, necessarily on purpose, but I've gotten to the point Get where I really it. like it, yeah. Heck, yeah. yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm sorry for all the people I ignore, but, oh, you know, it, it happens, but... It's reality, yeah. Well, say, we've been going for a little bit here, Zach. What do you say we uh, wrap it up and uh, maybe check back in after season, see how things went? Sounds good, man. Thanks yeah. for the chance to have me on here. And oh, I appreciate it. I like, I like so talking. Great. My favorite conversations are the ones that revolve around the the history and the conservation you know i'd rather it's easier to talk those topics than it is for me about uh you know a specific tactic or technique or something like that i would i would rather know about the the whole history and and why we're doing what we're doing and i think that's more beneficial 
people to learn about it anyway. So. I agree. I'm pretty biased, but I totally agree. I yeah. think that's part of the value of a show like that's this. That's probably why all of us work for the agents who work for us, because we're obviously interested in it. But I think there's a, a good segment of people out there who who in, would benefit from knowing that stuff and also enjoy it. So. Sure. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Lee. All right. Call it quits. Thank you. Mm -hmm.